Sam, how you doing? Jared, it is great to see you. It's been a little bit. It has a couple minutes, actually. Yeah, yeah. well, have you thought about my uh, request? Maybe you come to church with me on Sunday. You come, can stay with my family and I. Come to church with you. That's what I said, to church, Sam. Yes. I've thought highlight. about your invitation. Great. What'd I've thought about it a lot. Good. Hard pass. <laughs> I heard a gasp. I'm, I feel like the inside of me just gasped. Why would you say no to me, Sam? I feel like, you know, I've tried things that you like. Perhaps, you know, I thought maybe it would be good for you, your family, to come to church on Sunday. Can I give you my top seven? Seven. Top seven. I have more than that, but my okay. top seven. I would love to interact with your top seven, Sam. Number one. Okay. I hear the pastors at your church, they preach hour-long sermons. Two words. <laughs> Boring. <laughs> Not all of us. Uh, in fact, really only Pastor Andrew. But he's not preaching this Sunday. Um, you know, on staff, he's known as the wind machine. But um, he's not preaching this Sunday. Uh, so I think you won't have that big of a problem. I think we'll be fine. We'll be fine. Okay, number two. Yeah. No way am I showing up in a suit and a tie. I'm a jeans and a t-shirt sort of a guy. You know, I'm, I've been known for my informal attire a time or two. Um, I, you know, unless your name is Pastor Dave, suits are not required. And really, that's only because Dave knows how to make a suit look good. But the reality is, is the dress code at Highland really is, uh, is wide. And so I think, you know, you know you'll, you'll fit in just fine. Okay, you're doing good so far. Thank you. Okay, number three. Driving down the road the other day, okay. there was a sign in someone's yard that okay. said, in God we trust, next to a picture of President Trump. I was confused how those two things went together. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, I just don't want my church to preach politics. Yeah, okay, yeah, I see where that would be a little confusing. Um, at Highland, we preach out of the Bible, and so sometimes things in Scripture... Um, they kind of correlate with, with politics. Sometimes you may even think there's something political being said, but the reality is, is that we teach scripture and sometimes politics dives into that, but we don't preach parties. We don't really use uh, the pulpit as a platform to, you know, to endorse candidates. We, we teach the word and, and we can apply scripture to all of our lives, including political uh, things. So far, so good, but I yeah. think it's going to go downhill from here. Okay. Um, you know, Christians can just be negative. Yeah. I mean, there's so much talk about sin. I don't want to hear any preaching about sin. That's too much negativity in my life. Okay. Um, Sam, you realize that that negativity is already in your life, and you deal with sin just like I deal with sin. And because Careful. we preach Careful. the Bible, which does address sin, we also at Highland, we will address sin. But here's the thing, Sam. When you and I place our faith in Christ, and we, we trust him as Lord and Savior, there's something that is it's just crazy that happens. God does something in us and through us, and he begins this process of us becoming more and more like Jesus and freer from sin. So not only will we preach about sin at Highland, we will preach about how to be victorious over at Highland. Number five. Okay. I sent some scouts ahead of me a week ago. They came to church. Like last week? Last week. Oh, okay. wanted to, wanted we were some, not prepared for that, Sam. Okay. Wanted okay. some okay. real info. And here's what I found out. Okay. You serve gluten-free communion bread. <laughs> I am not a part of this whole woke movement. <laughs> Sam, did you just equate gluten-free with the woke movement? Okay. Um, uh, Sam, okay, here we go. There's this thing out there called 
gluten intolerance. And uh, some people have it. And, and the reality is, is we want people, Christ followers, to worship freely. And so that might mean to participate in communion, they need a gluten-free option. Now, the reality is this. The only woke movement you have to worry about at Highland is trying to stay woke during a Pastor Jeff message. Because I'm telling you, man, sometimes snoozer. Just so you know, we didn't write that line Not at on all. record. Oh, my <laughs> word. Oh, character, Sam. Character. Okay, okay. Well, let's focus. Yeah. Number six. Okay. I'm worried that church is completely unrelatable to my life. Yeah. Okay. So the thing is, because we teach out of the Word, uh, out of the Bible, the Bible has a lot to say about everyday life. So at Highland, you will hear, whether it's on the pulpit or in small groups, life groups, you'll, you'll experience teaching and community uh, talking about worship and prayer, how to be a good spouse or, or a child, how to uh, live a life that God would desire. We talk about all kinds of things. And, you know, the reality is, is there's a lot of places to find, you know, the fantasies of the world. But really, at Highland, we try to stay rooted in truth and grounded in scripture. So I think, I think you'll do just okay. You'll be fine. Okay. Last okay. but not least, number seven. Okay. I'm not going to church with a bunch of hypocrites. <laughs> you understand, Sam, that when you walk in the door, you've now ruined the hypocrite to non-hypocrite ratio. Um, the truth is you and I are hypocrites. Uh, and there's room for one more hypocrite at church on Sunday. And so um, how about this? Come with me. Stay with my family, enjoy church, and we will be two hypocrites trying to become less of one. How about that? I'll come with you next week if your pastor who's lurking behind you. Oh, hey, hey, Pastor um, Jeff. Hey. <laughs> if, he preaches, of- if he preaches less than a half an hour today, I'll come next week. Well, his timer says 29 minutes and four seconds, so we should be good. <laughs> and don't worry, Pastor Jeff. I drank plenty of coffee this morning. <laughs> They're so fired. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to uh, 1 Corinthians 12 and Hebrews 10. Let me just uh, ask God to guide our time. Father God, uh, as we talk about the church, the ecclesia, ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, allow us to not be hypocritical, not be legalistic, but to allow your word to say what your word says. That's our desire, to be changed and impacted by biblical truth. So guide us, we ask, in the name of Christ. Amen. We're in the middle of a series of texts, misunderstood, misapplied, Texts that people sometimes cite and they don't really have the context in proper order. Now, if you've been at Highland for any length of time, you know that generally I preach through books. Very rarely will I do a series like I'm doing, but every one of the sermons in the series has still been exegetical. I've had a text and I've worked through the text. But today I'm going to violate both of those. I'm going to preach in a way that I probably don't preach even once a year. I'm going to give a topical sermon. A topical sermon is when you have a topic and then 
to the best of your ability, you find biblical texts that speak in context to that topic. And so today I want to talk about the ecclesia, the church, ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, and really my phrase that I'm using to form the sermon is one that you've all heard. Maybe some of us have said, maybe many of us have thought, and that phrase is this, I can be a Christian without going to church. I can be a Christian without going to church. I want to tell you right up front, the answer to that is it's true. I also want to tell you that it is incomplete, but it is utterly true. Salvation is not based on anything you and I do. We bring our sin to salvation. God brings the rest. There is no work, even including church attendance or being good or giving enough. There is no work that will add to our salvation. None. For by grace, what we do not deserve. For by grace, we are saved through faith. That not of ourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, so none of us can boast. Going to church, gathering corporately, being part of the body of Christ is an act of worship. It is a response to salvation. It is not a means of salvation. And there's a profound difference. So yes, Yes, a person can be a Christ follower without going to church, but that is a very incomplete statement. From time to time in the history of the church, there have been major events that have happened in which people have stopped going to the church. Sometimes those events are valid, sometimes they are not. We had such an event a few years ago, COVID. I am not going to delve into what you think, what I think of COVID. We probably have a wide variety of convictions over it. But the truth of the matter is this. The President of the United States Congress and all of our governors at least one point required that churches stop meeting in person for three months. Now you can imagine the consternation in my mind and my heart and maybe yours as well. I seemingly have various passages of scripture that are now warring against one another. And scripture is utterly consistent, but we are not. And there are a plethora of passages that require church attendance. There are also a plethora of passages like Romans 13, 1 to 7, that tells us to obey our government. And so how do we accomplish both a command to gather and a command to obey when they're juxtaposed to one another? And so different people came to different conclusions. I'm not here to debate those. But I want to tell you the aftermath of it because it still exists 
today. There are about 400,000 Protestant churches in the United States. 400,000. The median attendance of a Protestant church in the United States is 65. If a church gets to 200 average attendance on a Sunday morning, it is in the large category by quite a bit. 2,500 churches get to the size of Highland out of the 400,000. Not that many. For those who are of the majority size, since COVID, they are averaging 12% less in physical attendance today. For the largest 2,500 churches, this would be one of them. On average, attendance is down 18% in person from the beginning of COVID to today. That is not true for Highland. We actually have a greater attendance today than we did then. But generally, attendance has declined all across the board in our country. It just has. And the question I want to ask today is not a legalistic question. The question I want to ask is this. What would the Lord say to us about in-person attendance? Would he say that it is okay to attend in person when it fits into our calendar and our convenience? Would he say that it is okay to be at home eating bacon in our lazy boy, folding laundry and watching church? It's one of our finest. Or would he say something different? This is not a legalistic question. We want to know what scripture says about the church. Now, you may be surprised when you think about the church from a biblical point of view. The Bible says that God is over all government, both in the Old Testament, Daniel 2, and the New Testament, 1 Peter 2. The Bible says that God is sovereign, sovereign over everything, Hebrews 1. The Bible says that God holds everything together in his hand, Colossians chapter 1. There is no institution that God does not rule over. None. But only one institution does he call his bride. Only one institution does he say he is the head of it. Only one institution does he corporately say is his body. And that's the church. There is something utterly unique about the church in Scripture that Jesus says he rules over it. He's the head of it. We are the bride of Christ. We are his body. Only the church. And I want to be so careful. I want to be so careful about denigrating the church. Whether the church is small or middle-sized or large or, or very large, it's the bride of Christ. Imperfect, oh my. Faulty leadership, 
Don't look any further than this church. But it's the bride of Christ. And I want to speak very carefully about the church. Yesterday, I spent several hours with several pastors. There are three in the town, but I only know two of them that had a family in their church that was arrested, rightly so, is going to go to jail, rightly so. And that family was in three different churches, not this one, but it could have been. And people on Facebook beat up two of my pastor friends saying that they knew what they did not know. And in fact, those two pastor friends reported this family combined five times to Child Protective Services. Five times. One of the pastors had his face and his kid's face put on Facebook, denigrating. He was in tears when we were praying and talking yesterday. That's the bride of Christ, imperfect, but it's an attack on individuals who actually did what the law required five times and ended up on Facebook being denigrated as not doing what they should have. They did. We need to be very careful when talking about the bride of Christ. That's the church. Let's learn a little bit about the bride. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I want to read verse 12 and then 14 to 20. It says this. For just as the body is one and has many members... And all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. Verses 14 to 20. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. What would, or that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ears should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet there is one body. You know, God created us to be interdependent. There is not a person in this room There's not a person on this planet that can reach optimal spiritual growth without one another. God created us to be in person, in fellowship, corporality, corporateness, for us to be together, the body gathered. We can never reach optimal spiritual growth without being part of the body of Christ in person. Now, some individuals, for physical reasons, health reasons, they can't. That's, that's fine. But when we get to the point where church becomes convenient, our ecclesiology is quite out of step with Scripture. In the New Testament, there are 59 one another passages. Now, every commentary tells me there are 60. 
I can't find the 60th one. So in my Bible, there's 59, probably 60 in yours, but I can't find that 60th one. But of those 59 one another passages scattered throughout the New Testament, almost all of them to be obeyed requires that we gather together on a regular basis to worship and to sharpen one another. Let me just read a few of them. Love one another 15 times. And the word used for love here is a word that, that talks about physical touch, physical presence, being with each other. Then you have welcome one another and greet one another and fellowship with one another and live in harmony with one another and physically comfort and care one another. I just went through that rather rapidly. That would be another two, four, six in each of those categories. And there are a number of these love anothers. I conveniently left out kiss one another with a holy kiss. I don't like that love, that one. Unless it's Betty Ann, just keep your distance. <laughs> but all of these require us to be around one another, to be in presence with each other, to obey scripture. 59 of them. In fact, it is in-person worship. The gathering of believers, the Bible calls the ecclesia of the church. The church is not a building. From time to time, a very sincere and alert individual will say, Jeff, what we have now doesn't approximate the first century church. They met in houses. If you read the epistles, Jeff, they met in houses, not in these buildings. It was kind of like a family gathered together and they had church together. And I can understand where somebody could come to that conclusion reading from the epistles, but it's not a correct conclusion. And let me share why. All of the New Testament is written in the Roman Empire. All of it. And in the Roman Empire, what they required was that everyone worshiped the Roman pantheon, six gods, six goddesses led by Jupiter. His counterpart is Zeus, the Greek pantheon. In addition, since Augustine, when the Holy One is born, Jesus Christ, an emperor is calling himself Augustus, the Holy One. And from Augustine on, Augustine on there was this command to worship the emperors as well. Well, obviously the church can't do that. That would violate the first two commands of the Decalogue. We will not be idolaters. We will work hard against idolatry. And so what happened to the church is it was against the law to have a building. Do you know that in the Roman Empire? You could not have a Christian church building against the law. So you go to the Appian Way, 12 miles outside of Rome, and you go down the catacombs, and you'll see large rooms. That's where the church was gathered. Dozens and dozens. Probably in some of those rooms, several hundred Christians were gathered together underground in the catacombs, out of the purview of Rome. You went out in the woods, and that's where the church was gathered. Or in very large homes, many families would gather not just one family worshiping alone. And their liturgy was the same as our liturgy because our liturgy and their liturgy all come out of the Psalms. 
you probably know that. The liturgy in the Psalms is the New Testament liturgy, which is really the type of liturgy that we follow today in church. So actually, (laughs) their church was just like this, except they didn't have the building. Not until 313, in the Edict of Milan under Constantine, when he legalized Christianity, and for the first time, we could actually have a church building, one of the oldest churches known in antiquity is the church of the nativity that was built just after Constantine legalized Christianity in the Roman Empire. We have sites where people gathered, but we didn't have buildings because it was against the law. So when people talk about home churches, They're talking about large gatherings of people outside of the purview of Rome, but they did not have a building because the ecclesia was the church and Rome wouldn't allow this type of building. And who was the leader, the head of the church? Then and now it is Jesus Christ. It's not some pastor, not some elder board. It's Christ. Listen to Colossians 1.18. And he, Jesus, is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. (coughs) Excuse me. Ephesians 5, 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Ephesians 1, 23 and 24. And God placed all things under his, Jesus' feet, and appointed him to be the head over everything, For the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Christ is the head of the church, the gathered church. He calls us his bride. In Ephesians 5, we read this this long passage, the longest in the New Testament, of what marriage ought to be like. Ephesians 5, 21, all the way to 33. And then he compares the husband-wife relationship with Christ's church relationship. Let me read it to you. Ephesians 5, 32, this mystery marriage is profound. And I'm saying that it, a, a sacred union, refers to Christ and the church. As a marriage is about two gathered physically together, the church is about many gathered physically together to push one another, to spur one another on, to be the body of Christ, to be the bride of Christ. Now, I want to look at a passage. I think it's one that you've heard. It's one I've taught before, I've studied before, but I learned something brand new this time around. You're going to have to stay woke to the end of the sermon to hear what I learned. But let me read to you Hebrews 10. 24 and 25. You probably know this so well. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I love that the day is referring to the return of Christ. Sometimes I'll read from somebody, uh, they'll write on some kind of social media that the world is going to hell in a handbasket. And I'll know that that is the same person who doesn't go to any church. And I laugh to myself because it says when you see the day approaching, if 
If the world is going to hell in a handbasket, it says that if you see the day approaching, what do you got to do? Be in church even more than you were before. Isn't that what the text says? Encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Well, from this text, I want to make three points. Church is to be intentional. Second, to be physically gathered and engaged in with others. And third, to be active. Well, be intentional, verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another. Let us consider. In the Greek text, it actually reads, uh, let us consider one another towards stirring up. The consider part is first, because what it's telling us is we need to be intentional in terms of our calendar, not going to church when it's convenient or going to church when something else doesn't push it aside. We ought to be intentional because we are the body of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. The Lord has the sacred marriage with his body and we need to be a part of it. It's an intentionality. Second, the second command, verse 24, is it's not just about us. Stir up one another towards love and good deeds. That word stir up is an interesting one. In the New Testament, it's a negative word. It means to prod, it means to poke, it means to annoy. It means to bug people. I don't actually think that's how it's used here. That is its dominant usage. And if that's what it means, then the verse is even stronger than I'm going to make it. I think it just means to persist. We're to persist with others, stirring them up in love and good deeds. Stirring up is persist with others, helping them to take the next step in their relationship with Jesus Christ. So the intentionality is because I need it. I will never reach optimal spiritual growth without the interdependency of the church. It's not possible. I'm not going to reach optimal spiritual growth unless I'm regularly with other believers. But the second point is that other believers will not reach optimal spiritual growth if I'm not here, if you're not here. If you're not utilizing your time and talents and treasures for the kingdom, if you're not a part of the church gathered, somebody else is not going to reach optimal spiritual growth. We are to persist. We're to stir one another up in loving good deeds. It takes the church gathered. I want to illustrate this in my own life. In sixth and seventh grade, my Sunday school teacher was Chris Van Brocklin. I don't know if you know that name. Probably most of you don't. Maybe a couple of you might recognize it. When he left the church I was in, he became the director of men's ministries for the Evangelical Free Church National Office. He also was very instrumental in starting new regrets. So that was my sixth and seventh grade Sunday school. He was our teacher. We were no joy. We were the class nobody wanted. Some years, I kid you not, we went through three teachers. Everybody hated our class. And there, were, there weren't many of us. There were like eight or nine. 
We came late. We left early. We never listened. We just fooled around. Chris Van Brocklin poured his life into us. And more than half of that small class has been in full-time vocational ministry ever since. He's the church gathered for us. By the way, that's a little divine retribution. We were squirrely and now we all speak to squirrely people and God just laughs. laughs. He says, you got what you deserve. Ninth grade, I don't know how our church managed it. I don't really know the insides are out, but they had some kind of relationship with what today is Moody Bible Graduate School. And Moody Bible had a little pilot program that our church had, and they allowed our church to teach their course as part of our Sunday school curriculum. And so the first course, and there were only a couple, was the book of Genesis. And everyone in that was at least 30, I think 40 years old. But I was in ninth grade. It was September of my ninth grade year, beginning of ninth grade. And I asked if I could be in it. I don't know why they said yes, I wouldn't have. And this course came with tests, and I failed the first one. Now, if I had been the teacher, I would have gone to a ninth grader and said, you know, this is just not something you can do. But that teacher met with me during the week, every week for the entire course to prepare me for each test. That's the church gathered. And he taught me a love for God's word. Ninth grade, same year. Our church had two pastors. They didn't talk to one another. They both took me out to lunch about a week apart or maybe two. And they both said the same thing. They believed that God would have me serve in full-time vocational ministry. It made such sense to a ninth grader. I came home and told my parents I'd go to college and graduate school and I would be in full-time ministry. That's the church gathered. When Betty Ann and I moved to Texas right out of grad school, uh, I had been in college for four years, grad school in four years, and then... uh, I don't know how old I was, maybe mid-20s. I don't really know. It was a church, kind of. We were replanting a church that had fallen apart. And there was a guy, Mr. Warren. Mr. Warren was in his 80s. I think I buried him at 87. And Mr. Warren, this engineer, very, very successful man, decided to befriend me. I have no idea why. About six weeks in, he came to me and said, Jeff, I'm going to learn something from you. I've read some of those sermons. He didn't learn anything. I can tell you he didn't learn anything. But every so often, he'd make a little comment, a little suggestion, very, very kind, very gentle. And he shaped a little young pastor in this tiny little church to be a little better one week than I was the week before. Mr. Warren was the church He was the church for me. He was the church gathered. He understood that church wasn't just what he got out of it. I doubt that I taught Mr. Warren a single thing. I would be very surprised if I did. He was a very bright, very accomplished man. And I knew next to nothing. But he was in the church to teach me. You're in the church. I'm in the church, both because we will never reach 
our maximum spiritual capacity without one another, interdependence, and because somebody is dependent on you. I think of our children and our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. They're watching us. And if we decide to make church not intentional, just casual, what do you think the next generation is going to do? If we're casual, it'll be non-existent in their life. If we're casual about morality, it'll be non-existent in their life. If we're casual about ethics, it will be non-existent in their life. They are watching us. And so the second thing I learn about in Hebrews 10.24 is not only that I need the church, but the church, somebody in the church needs me. Somebody in the church needs you. And you say, well, my kids have grown. I didn't grow up in the church, and I already blew that. Well, Paul says in Philippians 3.13, I forget what lies behind. I strain forward to what lies ahead. How are we going to live starting today? If our ecclesiology, our understanding of the church expands today, then we live in accordance with how it's expanded today. And we begin to model just a little bit more than we modeled the day before. The church gathered. So far, we've talked about being intentional. Being physically gathered and engaged for others. And now, we'll talk about being active. I told you I learned something in the text that I had never seen before I did. Let me read verse 25 again. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That word neglect is actually found 170 times in the Greek version. We call it the Septuagint of the Old Testament. It's a common word. I never gave it much thought but it's a covenant word that draws my attention. A covenant word is a marriage word. When a man and a woman say, I do, it's not just a commitment. What does the Bible say? What God has joined together, let not man rip asunder. It's a covenant made before the Lord. And there's only a few exceptions in one's life that would allow one to get out of that covenant. It's a covenant word. This is a covenant word. Do not neglect. It's a covenant God has made with a believer. That now you're the body of Christ. Now we are the bride of Christ. He is the head of us. He has made a covenant with us. And when we break the covenant, we forsake. That's the covenant. Do not break the covenant. Do not forsake the assembly of the saints as some are in the habit of doing. Let me illustrate how this word is used 170 times in the Old Testament. I'm going to read from Deuteronomy 28.20. It says this. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds. Here's the covenant card. Because you have forsaken me. That's the word. That's what God is saying to Israel. God had a covenant relationship with Israel and they broke the covenant. And that's the word used in verse 25. Do not forsake the assembly of the saints. Don't break the covenant. 
The church gathered is the covenant because we will never reach optimal spiritual growth without interdependency. Others will never reach optimal spiritual growth without us building into their lives, us using our time, talents, and treasures. And God said, you're the bride. I'm the head. Whether you like it or not, when you came to Christ, we have a covenant now. And that covenant is don't forsake. Don't forsake the assembly of the saints. The word is used, by the way, very positively in Hebrews 13, where God says, I will not forsake. Same word. I will not forsake you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. God's made a covenant with believers that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. That's the covenant God makes with us. And so maybe our ecclesiology has been stretched a little bit today. We're the body. We're the bride. He's the head. And the church gathered when we're physically able is his desire. Because we will never reach optimal spiritual growth without one another interdependence and others will never reach optimal spiritual growth unless we play the role that God intends through us in the lives of others. Let's pray. Father God, uh, today maybe you've stretched our understanding of your bride, the church, a little bit, our ecclesiology. And we thank you for the church. We thank you for creating it, the only institution you claim to run on your own, even though you control, own, and sustain every institution. We are your bride. Father, help us to be the best bride we can. Help us speak well of your bride, even as we pray to improve your bride, work to improve your bride. Father, we confess your bride is sometimes an ugly bride. Forgive us and help us to mature your bride, the church, as you would desire. And Father, if we have failed in the past, help us to agree, confess, turn, repent, and then forget what lies behind and strain forward to what lies ahead. Thank you for such incredible grace in our lives. We love you in the name of Christ. Amen.